Hello, everybody out there in dreamland. I'm going to say, and shalom. This is Rumors of Instinct, and you are listening to the Rumors of Instinct podcast. If you are catching this on either Spotify, Anchor, Overcast, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, uh, I think it's uh, Free Radio, Public, um, uh, Podbay, Podbean, um, Himalaya, that was one of them, Himalaya, a number of uh, the distributor networks and providers, I sincerely thank you very, very much. Um, If you're catching this on YouTube or the library Odyssey uh, mirror uploads for the video portion of it, um, I also thank you, you know, um, sincerely, but... This is the, the trick is that they are not going to be able to hear this portion of it, for they are only going to be receiving a 30-minute preview randomly selected from the body of the podcast presentation, for this is an exclusive um, full-length presentation on podcast only. And this is going to be North, East, West, and South um, news. This is going to be an episode that is more centered on a passion project of mine and more my own recent developments of thinking and, you know, ideation on a subject after a brief meditation on it over the last couple of days. And that's uh, cryptozoology and ego death. Um, the highly dramatized way of basically arguing ethnocentrism versus cultural relativism in the context of cryptozoology uh, when it comes to the more speculative and fringe orientation of this. Now, I have an immense respect for the natural sciences. I have an immense respect for academia when it comes to their collection of work and effort. And I understand their culture from an insider perspective having gone through the university system itself, which is um, where I also understand that on the outside looking into it, it's very labyrinthian and um, obtuse and it feels very elitist and, um, you know, highly uh, elitist. And basically uh, what you see is a lot of cryptozoologists without college degrees, without uh, academic backgrounds, um, appearing in the woodwork and basically denouncing all of academia and um, without the basic educations or mandatory educations expected to by like professors or, um, you know, field researchers, fellows in um, different scientific uh, fields of study, these laymen, uh, without a sense of derogatory uh, derogatory terms for it, for what it is, they are not people of degrees, but they are like commoner people, um, will take a huge offense of someone with a degree, or someone in academia, um, you know, professing to know, professing to be an expert on a subject. Now, the academic would take a great degree of offense 
for that layman to have a degree of offense for this because they have worked within the traditions of their field of study and their scientific effort, um, you know, diligently out of passion. And I think there's just a miscommunication coming into the terms of both uh, being rather guarded and being rather uh, confrontational. Now, here's the thing with our culture, because it's not, it doesn't exist within a vacuum. Everything in our culture is extremely uh, confrontational and politicized now to the point of extreme divisiveness. And I believe that we're seeing a re- renaissance, a resurgence of cryptozoology and cryptozoologists, um, particularly in the field of Sasquatch research, uh, Bigfoot research, but also in many other fields, too. Um, say, for example, never before has there been so many ufologists. Never before have there been so many conspiracy, uh, political conspiracy theorists. Never before have there been so many, um, you know, uh, cultists or ghosts or spiritists, uh, you know, spiritualists, the ghost hunters and things. They These people are emerging from the very common salt of the earth uh, populations of America. Small town America, midtown America, big city America. Because they are gravitating towards fields of research that they are passionate about without uh, the restrictions imposed by academia. Because they are doing it voluntarily. You know, um, someone in a small town in uh, Wyoming, for example, who decides to start studying Bigfoot is doing so out of their own accord. It is not, um, you know, it doesn't really have a lot of uh, restrictions on that kind of practice. So these people are free to, or these populations of researchers, not like saying, oh, these people, but these populations of researchers, because if you really look at it, it's, it's bigger picture type thing. It's a culture emerging of self-taught, self-directed academics in which um, never before have people had so much access to information, never before have people had so much access to uh, evidence and media, Uh, but also people are very empowered, and they're empowered because they are starting to see the, uh, the scale of things, which is... Even if you had all the professor, PhD holding anthro, uh, you know, I guess you call it um, forensic anthropologists and and um, primatologists and you know um, different kinds of researchers involving primates and primate evolution and genealogy and and all those experts together. You know, in the English-speaking world, we're probably number way less than 100,000. You know, it would be several thousand, but it would probably be way less than 100,000 versus the sheer amount of uh, amateur, you know, Bigfoot research and things is quickly outnumbering them, is quickly outpacing them. And, And the idea of it being a marginalized study is quickly becoming obsolete. That's quickly becoming more of a, uh, uh, 
a anachronism, a, a, a misnomer from that's historically been obsolete. Uh, for example, um, people are now becoming able to cross-reference and research material over the last 30, 40, 50 years when it comes to film, when it comes to photography. And they still want the population to kind of focus all its energy on issues which have been resolved for the last 40 years, uh, 50 years even sometimes, in which um, they don't want you to kind of imagine that we've moved beyond it or that the average day citizen has the power to move beyond it, to put these things at rest, while they assume, for example, that the mainstream academics can move at a lightning-fast pace um, within decades to studying. And it's a very um, much a debate of the pot calling the kettle black in many occasions, where you have mainstream academia, right? And you have colleges, you have your universities, you have your professors, you have your... Um, you know, you're professionals, basically, right? And they control the narrative of what is considered uh, Western, modern, uh, accepted fact, right? And you see these same professors accumulate an incredible uh, mastery of deep time and in their uh, picture of reality, right? Like, their own philosophy is extremely well um, understood by them. Like, they are experts in this. Like, it's it, like they can understand um, their fundamental worldview, you know, to an astounding degree uh, of, of uh, resourced uh, fact, Right, like every bone that helps their fossil record, the species throughout the different eras, the different like Cenozoic, Mesozoic, Paleozoic type eras, um, you know, real deep time, real evolutionary history, as well as the gestalt effects of all their natural sciences from geology to zoology to paleontology to, you know, um, you know, everything basically adds to this one unified understanding of what they think is possible. But within that, they are allowed to make mistakes, they are allowed to grow, they are allowed to change their minds, they are allowed to adapt within the parameters of professionals of these of these PhDs, of these of these university types, you know, within their own understanding of checks and balances, right? Like there are committees and congresses that have to vote and stuff like this. Uh, peers have to review material, for example. Now, this does not negate the fact that human nature creates independent thought, that human nature is ultimately independent and that each person thinks for themselves. They only agree when they have doubt of their own mastery of a subject or their own experiences are lacking. They are insufficient to create what is concrete knowledge to the contrary, right? Not that they've experienced reality in a similar way, but that it's the best answer to a question they themselves have no answer to, right? Like, what killed the dinosaurs? 
because they are not masters on that subject, it is easiest for these academics to um, gravitate towards a theory that is popular simply because monkey see, monkey do. If they start seeing that the emboldened trend is one way, overwhelming populations will refuse to fight it. There are academics within paleontology. There are academics within the university system who are extremely influential, who are now pariahs because they have refused to go along with popular trends against their own experience, against their own intuition, against their own knowledge and their own expertise. These people basically uh, have become martyrs for this vein of independent thought, of this ethnocentrism versus cultural relativism, this type of uh, tribalism that, that has occurred, this divisiveness and this, these politics, which are creating a conflicting nature in the fields of knowledge, in the field of research and of experience, on a human level, on a tribal level. Which is, you know, why I think we're going into a dark age, especially when it comes to biology, zoology, ecology, things like that. Not because we have a lack of knowledge, but because the knowledge is becoming um, um, highly uh, contested. And it's not the knowledge itself, because knowledge does not wax or wane. The knowledge is fact, and fact is, you know, uh, universal, right, as a consistent. But the opinions of that fact, the uh, ways that that fact is approached and taught, and who it is taught to and how freely it is taught, and how freely it is understood, that becomes politicized. That becomes um, divisive. Now, the divisive nature of this knowledge really isn't uh, its own fault. For example... This is where I think cryptozoology gets it's involved in that whereas academia is one thing allowed to experiment and to be experimental and to be controversial and to be um, explorative and it's within its own perimeters that the cryptozoology field is not allowed those same liberties mostly because the people within um you know, from the outside, you know, seen by uh, the legitimacy, legitimate uh, academics, is they don't treat it the sa as fairly as they would um, their own, like within their own build of subject, because of a perceived lack of legitimacy in the re other researchers due to things like. Uh, Uh, the idea of, I guess you would call it their quickly adaptive and quickly uh, formating uh, or formative um, uh, theories, concepts, they don't really work within a set of constant laws. They may work with more with loosely defined traditions. They may actually hearken back to antiquated or antiquated and sometimes obsolete, um, not obsolete, but culturally uh, bygone and, and considered primitive uh, methods of 
you know, uh, qualifying evidence or qualifying um, reality. One of these, for example, is the reliance on eyewitness accounts of locals versus, for example, the evidence sustained by a fossil record. Academics and university people love fossil records, um, and they love the gestalt type of science that goes around the the paleontological world. Like that's what I said. Mostly, we're going to focus on how cryptozoology and paleontology, uh, you know, affects to the idea of zoology, and how it's really you have to kind of merge these fields of thought to get a clear picture of what's really going on. Um, because the reality is much, much stranger than any one field of natural science can cover because the academics are more right than they know about the gestalt reality they try to um, investigate, which is they use, say, for example, the geological clues around a fossil to, say, for example, judge the era or the time in which, or, you know, especially the environment, the surrounding type realities to answer the questions posed by this now discovery. And they do an amazing amount of work in that end of things, you know, to fulfill their own desires to create this illusion of deep time. Whereas cryptozoologists do a lot to fulfill this idea of... Okay, so this is the thing. There are two kinds of cryptozoologists which are quickly becoming apparent, and that is uh, another thing between ethnocentrism and cultural relativism. There are the academic cryptozoologists who are seeing things strictly from a natural, scientific viewpoint. And these people are doing things speculatively, but at the same time are doing things with the same traditional framework as traditional zoologists, biologists, natural philosophers, um, taxonomists, uh, everything from studying ecologies to, uh, you know, possible related things. So think about, like, the study of the coelacanth in terms of the cryptozoologists, or study of Tasmanian tigers, study of the pygmy hippo in Madagascar. These things are not extraordinary creatures, but they are creatures that, if proven, would validate cryptozoology as a field of research because they are cryptozoological inquiries. The idea that extinct animals can be currently alive is a theory or a thesis already proven by the show um, Extinct or Alive, but with um, um Oh, what is the guy's name? I'm blanking out right now, but it's, it's extinct or alive. I'll pull it up right now. Um, and it's a show on Animal Planet in which the same, the, the, an actual legitimate um, biologist proves academia wrong on many occasions. And it's not a, a top secret thing. And it's extremely controversial because it doesn't seem to have a major impact on academia at all, even though it's extremely apparent that it proves that there is much more to zoology and biology than um, the university academics are one people know, especially when it comes to things like sustainability of species or the longevity of species. 
which, you know, is a thing that we'll talk about when it comes to um, these biologists who can say an animal uh, could live for 10 million years and then all of a sudden go extinct 100,000 years ago as if though the environment would change so drastically over the course of 200,000 years to negate 10 million years of species experience and endurance. There was no climate event within 10 million years of time, but that within a matter of 100,000 years, the world would so violently change as to cause the extinction of a species without, say, for example, a, a, a disaster-level event such as an asteroid or, or extreme tectonic upheaval or something. So, um, Extinct or Alive, yeah, with uh, Forrest Galante. That's his name, Dr. Forrest Galante, wildlife biologist. Um, and Forrest Galante is the grandson of a scientist who, the scientist who found the coelacanth, who documented the first coelacanth. So he's got a pedigree for this kind of stuff. And it's kind of like whenever you meet the same people multiple times within a subject, you understand that they're gatekeepers. And it's because of that. The entire idea of field biology is to gatekeep on what is a um, real animal or not. They, they could basically say what is real or not. They're the, because um, you call it like the masters of the biological, zoological aspects of this matrix in, in the way that they're the guardians of it. They can, um, by their simple denial of paying something attention or validating, or even just accepting its um, existence, um, basically alter mankind's perception of the world they live in uh, to a degree that they can deny, for example, the existence of the Madagascar pygmy hippo uh, due to the lack of physical evidence, the lack of fossils or skeleton remains or the lack of eyewitness accounts, even though there are current eyewitness accounts and even though that Forrest Galante found a uh, skeleton, a fresh skull of one that was 200 years old, you know, and so uh, proving that the academics were wrong again. And then he also, for example, was in Louisiana and randomly encountered a water buffalo and most, most uh, you know, fish and game parks and wildlife, um, university-level type naturalists, uh, biologists or ecologists would tell you that there are probably no water buffaloes roaming around the swamps of North America, even though there was very clearly one. Now, he's gone on to do things like find the Caribbean seal, um, you know, many, many different kinds of specimens that should not exist, but which ultimately prove cryptozoology is fundamentally uh, authentic and uh, accurate of uh, intent-wise, that there are unknown animals, animals which have been deemed extinct, which are currently alive, um, still extant species, that there are misplaced species, invasive species, that there are uh, hereditary, like, like uh, living fossils, if you were, or that our fossil record 
is not wrong because these creatures still exist in ice and in places, you know, uh, wild wilderness zones, wild places, but just that the world is that large or that, uh, the species is just, you know, surviving along with us. It doesn't really have a lot of implications to it and it doesn't have to prove academia wrong. Like I said, this is what the point I'm making is that academia is currently always changing its mind. It's currently always able to, uh, update itself and to kind of accept the new information along with the old, accepting that it's no more the master is of the leading edge in this field of study. You know, nothing is mastered yet, nothing is for certain, but they are the ones to find the answers when they pose the right questions. Um, cryptozoology is not an antagonist towards them. But it is showing their blind sides as well as against the agenda when they choose to ignore or invalidate the common person as an eyewitness expert or as a local expert. Uh, much the same way that colonially, nations such as, you know, uh, the English crown in Australia when they disrespected the Aborigines' rights over their land, disrespected them as inferior beings, as inferior human beings, culturally, considering them primitive and delegitimizing any relationship of cooperation or cohabitation that they might have had, thus relegating them into being a second-class citizen. Just the same way that American settlers did to the Native Americans of the Plains and of the uh, Rocky Mountains, um, they immediately delegitimized any relation, any kind of an, uh, expertise or influence that these people might have had, any kind of uh, you know mastery of the subject, which was to you know, of uh, being, you know, a peer-to-peer kind of thinker simply because one is one way built up within its traditions, within its own ethics, within its own mores, uh, within its own, you know, exact same framework that academia and universities are built in right now, and another is another way built up within its own tribal communities, its own cultural context, uh, this is where ethnocentrism versus cultural relativism comes in, because cultural relativism. Let me see. It, get the definition for this up. Uh, cultural relativism is the belief that culture or people serves particular needs and must be looked at in terms of the world that people inhabit. So that the idea of educating oneself, of uh, you know, being an amateur layman researcher is providing the same essential services to not only oneself personally, but one's community as a university or professor or field researcher does to the academic world at large. That is seen as a challenge, as a, as a uh, contest for, for authority. That is both correct and incorrect. The thing is, the, the the world has to be more inclusive and to kind of open up the the chance of 
the everyday person to make contributions to science and to make contributions to the world of academia without having to sacrifice and dedicate one's majority of life and to meet standards which essentially are extremely hard to meet, you know, by design, um, to be even listened to, to be even eligible to participate in the conversation. And by that time, one has to already uh, trade one's sense of local environment and expertise for another. So, so you have to think it's, it's happening both times. See, that's the venom of colonialism is that if you said a native person had to leave his native land and go to the capital of this colonial empire to receive an education, to understand the laws of the colonial power so that he may go back to his land and then make some kind of change, that's an extremely uh, unfair disadvantage against that person, you know, and having to play your game, basically when you're making them jump through hoops simply to have a voice and the same essential dignities, basically. It's a, it's a forced cultural assimilation in the, in the attempt at um, defending oneself from assimilation, you know. It's like saying that you have to, you have to uh, learn someone's language if you want to have a conversation with them. And uh, not in the good way, where you have to like learn where they're coming from, but that they have to learn your language because you're not willing to to meet halfway. You're not willing to listen in the other way. Um, that that what they have to say has no meaning to you. What they have to say has no importance to you unless they speak your language. That is wrong. That is unethical. That is against the the spirit of education, against the spirit of learning, against the spirit of wisdom. If I went to the jungles of Borneo, and the Bornese or the the the, uh, the people in Borneo were telling me about a creature that lived in the forest, but I didn't speak their language, and so I considered what they were saying as nothing but the fanciful stories of primitive peoples, like the superstitions. And it was simply because I could not be bothered to understand the nuances of their language. That is my error. As, that is my shortcoming as an intellectual. That is my failure as a field researcher. And it provides an extremely inaccurate presentation of reality. And it provides an extremely inaccurate um, cultural mindset for my own people if my work is influential, if my work is actually taken seriously, if it's legitimate. What you're seeing in academia is that same, is the same uh, thing that's going on, is that they are treating cryptozoology as a pseudoscience strictly because of its most fringe and baseless and within itself its most extreme and, you know, often erroneous uh, uh, incarnations or examples. And they use it the same way as saying that everyone in a me with a medical disability would be in a freak show, not necessarily having a dignified and, and fulfilled sense of normalcy and acceptance within the community. And it creates a cultural mindset that is adverse to the idea 
of accepting and uh, dignifying, you know, afflicted or not afflicted because that comes with the idea exactly like why does it have to be so negative if it's just a other form of it's like you know it may not be your form of existence because if you're an academic looking at the cryptozoologist layman you might think why did you not take my path but that's the ethnocentrism the idea that one's culture is the main standard by which other cultures may be measured and so you have academics you know not extending the humanity or the 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 uh, individual legitimacy that they extend one another on, uh, in their own society, in their own community, are that they're extended themselves within the community <laughs> to others simply because of that, like, uh, feeling of us versus them. That the cryptozoologists are people who uh, think Bigfoot rides the Loch Ness Monster, you know, and, and they think that... Uh, the most insane things simply on a whim with absolutely no credibility or that all evidence must be either a hoax or a forgery that all that there is no legitimate evidence and that everyone is seen through a prism of uh, primitivism. Basically it's just even a modern person can be a very primitive person and that primitive people have, no real, like I say, no real knowledge or wisdom of the world they live in, right? Like, they are not really worth even treating as um, sources of information when it comes to the real world view that we live in. Um, geologists do not ask indigenous peoples about the history of the world. They study rocks, in laboratories. Um, paleontologists do not ask uh, indigenous aboriginal tribes about the history of the flora and fauna of their lands. They study fossils they pull out of dirt in the desert and then try to piece together the history of the world that we now occupy. And they do so according to their own tenets and their own traditions. And they have built these tenets and traditions internationally. They have built them into a new world order. And this is what the new world order truly means, is that it's one monolithic culture that you can be an English paleontologist. You can be a Chinese paleontologist. You can be an Australian paleontologist or a Brazilian paleontologist or a Canadian paleontologist, you basically believe in the same thing. That you basically all use the same textbook. That you basically use this system of belief known as modern scientific uh, academia. Right? Modern, modern academia. Now, any challenge to that becomes like a challenge towards religion, or a challenge to Marxism. It's a challenge to a fundamental way of life. A fundamental worldview. Now, like I said, most cryptozoologists run in two camps. The cryptozoologists that are within a camp, that the academic field, and they're trying to look for... Like Forrest Galante, who is a biologist, who is a biological pedigree of science, of old researcher pedigree. 
who already has generations within his family of proving cryptological uh, tenants exist. So is willing to give it a chance and then produces those things. So, you know, it's not an incorrect or uh, mistaken or, or foolish uh, belief, but they operate strictly within the field of the biological researchers precedent, basically the biological world's precedent, right? The scientific world's precedent. And they deal with things which are considered, um, credential, even though they deal with it in the same way that I hope everything is being dealt with within the cryptozoological world, um, logically and rationally, right? Then you have your other more extreme or fringe on the version of that spectrum list where you're dealing with the woo. You're dealing with the, um, you know, your, your classic cryptid crowd. You're dealing with your Mothman. You're dealing with your New Jersey devil. You're dealing with your, um, lake monsters and your sea monsters, which says that the, 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 this is not you legitimize any of these fields, but this is what I'm saying. You're no longer dealing with, say, for example, a jaguar in California, which would be a cryptid within itself, um, but or a polar bear in Texas, something like that. You know, like um, an uh, an animal, a kangaroo in Texas, a camel on the beach. You know, in in Texas, that that'd be a cryptid that would make rational academic sense and have modern precedents uh, even though it may be uh, hidden or denied by mainstream uh, scientific you know institutions like the park and game the wildlife administration of the state right that's a true rational cryptid hunt then looking for say for example sea monsters off the pier or off the jetty of Port Aransas uh, and then making it kind of a pursuit to look for sea monsters or uh, pterodactyl sightings which Texas has a precedent for South Texas has a precedent for pterodactyl sightings um, Bigfoot for example within the uh, Russian shrublands of the river um, these are the more of the extreme uh, end of the spectrum cryptozoological things where you would not have any real legitimacy within academia. This would all be independent field study. This would all be field research. And in fact, even though there's examples for it in history, there have been sightings in history, mass sightings in history, multiple sightings in history, generational sightings in history, reported to by the local newspaper, reported on the news. They become um, cultural phenomena about the traditions in the town, right? And your only real avenue of corroboration or of, uh, you know, evidence would be eyewitness accounts. That is what academia would ignore the most, are those eyewitness accounts. That would be insufficient evidence to them to even bother you know, posting a field researcher, really putting any funding towards this, uh, legitimizing it with really any kind of attention or study, right? So this is where I'm saying it's an outlier. Even though they're, the university, you know, operates off that pier and, and does, you know, real scientific research on the marine biology of this area, it won't put 
a dime or a dollar towards um, the investigation of any sea monsters or sea serpents or anything like that, right? I mean, it, it, it will do sharks, but, it, you know, because those... See, it understands, like, it'll do sharks, but it won't do um, uh, megalodons, you know, where is your evidence, where is your proof type thing. It'll, all, it'll ask you for the burden of proof, right? And um, that's the tradition of it, right? And it'll think that conversation is extremely illegitimate. Now, personally, one time I saw a what I an object in the water. You know, I was working on the beach uh, as a maintenance man. I was there before the sun rose. Uh, when I all my working days, I was there around the jetty watching the sun rise, uh, walking the length of it. You know, just kind of taking in the morning solace. Then, while looking at the shipping pier uh, that divided the jetty between San Jose Island, I saw. In the water, uh, as the sunlight was just kind of hitting it, you know, so this it wasn't a full mirror yet, uh, but you could see it was lighting up, and you could see this dark object in the water. It was torpedo shaped. It was the size of a ship because the ships had come through, you know, and not a huge freighter, a, a multi hundred foot freighter, a thousand meter long, uh, a thousand foot long, you know, three hundred meter long freighter. No, but it was the size of, you know, a good-sized vessel, a yacht or a shrimp boat, 60 feet, you know, 50 to 60 feet long. And uh, it was underwater. It was torpedo-shaped. It didn't have, like, a long neck or any kind of humps or, or scoots or anything like that, no shell. Um, it was dark, and um, it didn't. I didn't break the surface, really. It skimmed right below it so that you could see the wake had a very... Um, pronounced and strange effect where you could see the weight coming off of it like as it displaced water but it didn't really break the surface and I saw this thing as it swam straight out of the channel and it was only it was only about 10-20 seconds of visible time but it felt like you know I, I understand the feeling of tunnel vision and you know as I saw it my mind was racing and I was like uh, this is a submarine you know the one of the weirdest thoughts I had was and this was a submarine. This had to be a type of submarine. Like, I, I, the history of the area is U-boats have attacked that specific area. And the, um, you know, National Guard put uh, a defensive perimeter up there. And so that uh, they could defend from um, any kind of attack by the Japanese, you know, or attack from the, the Germans, sorry, attack from the Germans in World War II because the Germans had previously already attacked uh, oil uh, oil production around that area or, or, or whatever the specific case was, right? Basically, I thought submarine as submarine moved out of the a channel, but then I thought, no, it wasn't a submarine. It was biological in origin. Like, this was something that was unexplainable. Recently... There have been articles presented about a whale that was heretofore undiscovered until 2019 or 2020 called the uh, Bird's Whale. 
and the bird's whale is a Gulf of Mexico um, specific whale that looks remarkably similar to what I think I saw, like what I remember seeing. And if that was the case, then if I had had that sighting as a cryptozoological eyewitness testimony that I had seen that object, right, without knowledge of a bird's whale, it would be known as a sea monster sighting, and it wouldn't, and that's why I kind of keep it close to my vest, even though I've seen, I told my girlfriend at the time, I told her family, I told the people I worked with, I wasn't quiet about it, right, and they, they all said they had seen some crazy stuff in the water too, you know, everything from manta rays to, to, you know, uh, one guy said he saw an orca, a pot of orcas, when he was deep sea fishing once. And so there's weird shit out there. And uh, it's like we get a variety of, of flora and fauna and everything from great white sharks to whale sharks and in between. Now, um, if I had never heard of these new articles, right, I would keep up the story that this was a sea monster, this was a sea serpent sighting, but then you hear the new facts that there is in fact a whale that's specific to the Gulf of Mexico that was therefore not known. It was not public knowledge that this whale existed in 2016, right? That's what I'm saying is that this whale was not quote-unquote real in 2016, even though it was real. It was a biological reality. It was a species that has lived in the Gulf of Mexico for years. In fact, uh, there are several sea serpent sightings specifically about, uh, you know, around this area. And so it's very likely that what we were seeing was this whale that science itself had missed, that the universities had missed, that NOAA had missed, that the Navy had missed, that all these people had missed. And <laughs> when it was found, it was washed up into the Everglades in Florida. So they had to find a corpse of one even though there is probably hundreds, if not thousands, of eyewitnesses throughout the years around the Gulf of Mexico, from fishermen to, you know, local retirees to tourists, to people just, you know, who happened to be working when the beach was quiet and, and paying attention to things like this. You know, science would not have accepted that reality, but then science had to bend its own knee and to say it had discovered a cryptid whale, a, a creature the size of a whale that it had not previously documented in 2020. I mean, think about how much activity, shipping activity, scientific research activity, mining activity, uh, drilling activity, um, you know, it's... It's not a, a quiet place. It's extremely active. You know, it's, it's an extremely active Gulf of Mexico. And they're still discovering creatures the size of whales. This is where I was saying is that academia can change. Academia can change its mind. Academia can learn. It can admit mistakes. It can grow. That's not unethical for it to do it. But it does not extend the kind of legitimacy that eyewitnesses have in the situation because unless it makes the discovery, unless it is there to kind of document within its own traditions and precedents, then nothing can change outside of it, right? Nothing can, nothing outside can influence it. It can only influence itself. Now, as cryptozoologists, when we take it 
personally, when we see it as a confrontation to um, the individual's rights in the same way, say, for example, we take it for granted that we have uh, respect within a community or a place within a community, but then when it becomes clear that we don't, that, in fact, um, we as natives of this land are being treated much historically like the Native Americans, um to this new world order, like as this new world order gets in place, that all our beliefs, all our traditions, all our values are basically being thrown away and replaced with this new uh, foreign mindset, this new foreign um, occupation mindset, you know, where the university is, was literally right down the road, right down the, like I could see it, aisle side, it was just right down the way uh, from where I had the sighting. But if I had, say, for example, went straight there, knocked on the door, asked to talk to a marine biologist, and told him my sighting, he probably wouldn't have believed me. You know, like, exactly, like, that's the thing. If I had just walked a quarter mile down the road to the university, knocked on the door, and said I had saw the sea monster in 2016, he would not have believed me. Even though now it is a fact that this whale exists in the Gulf of Mexico, and that was probably what I saw. Like, do you understand? Like, there's a, there's that contradiction of thought. There's a contradiction of the way. Which, as I said, is the battle between ethnocentrism and cultural relativism. Now, my solution to that, I guess I'll continue with. Okay, welcome back everybody out there in dreamland. This is once again Rumors of Instinct. You are listening to the Rumors of Instinct podcast. I thank you sincerely for your patience and your time. Thank you all very much. Iron sharpens iron, a friend sharpens a friend. I sincerely 
appreciate each and every one of you listening right now, new and old subscribers. Definitely, you're welcome. Uh, check out the portfolio and archive of previous episodes. But right now, we're speaking about cryptozoology, and we're going to be speaking about the second part of the cryptozoology and eco death episode of the Northeast West South News, which I am speaking about currently right now. Um, this is a series of, you know, things that are news in my own personal, um, my own personal world, which is, you know, providing a, an empowerment of someone not just being telling you what's going on or what should matter, but actually you, you know, rejecting outward what matters to you. And so basically it's a, that revolutionary sense of truth telling. So not so much going and finding the facts of the world, but presenting your facts to the world. You know, basically uh, a self-interrogation, uh, but public self-interrogation. So, now the second part of the cryptozoology ego-death episode, uh, the first part that was just this last hour, uh, focused on understanding the ethnocentric versus cultural relativism uh, battlefield that is the academic worldview of natural sciences, you know, zoology, biology, horticulture, geology, um, ecology, et cetera, et cetera, all the ologies, right? Your, your academic uh, tree of uh, uh, reality and how they work together to form this gestalt practically religious um, study of the world as it is in the moment in accordance to their philosophy of Darwinian evolution and deep time. Now, those are two important pillars, but I don't want to really harp on them too much because um, they are very controversial uh, and they are lightning rods of, of controversy. You know, they, they are heat magnets. And um, I've already gone on record on stating how what I believe and, and the evidence for that belief on uh, are towards Darwinian evolution and uh, the concept of deep time as well. Now, I'm not saying it's a intentional misdirection or, uh, you know, promotion of a delusion, promotion of the untruth, the spreading of a lie. But it is the belief that they adhere to. And within that belief, their knowledge is extremely nuanced. It's extremely, um, you know, accumulated. Uh, it's just this giant aggregate of information and data. And uh, it becomes the labyrinth that they build their worldview on. It becomes the found, fundamental and foundation understanding of of what they build their worldview in. And inside that worldview, they are, they have attained a mastery of it in this academic, uh, you know, institutionalism, this new world order of knowledge, the royal society, the royal academics of society, right? Um, relegating every other kind of thought, train of thought to a sense of primitivism or to see it within the prism of primitivism uh, as mattering as little as a tribal, an Amazon's, uh, you know, religious sense of, of 
you know, the world or his interpretation of the human spirit that matters as little as that. Like, your worldview, your understanding of the world, your experiences matter as little to the New World Order as an Amazonian tribesman's um, idea of how birds fly or why birds are what they are. You know, like, how birds came to be. Um the universities of this world, the professors of this world, care as little uh, for that theory, you know, for that for that tribesman's theory, even though that tribesman may have to have lived within a system that produced a tradition and mastered that tradition, you know, like, understood this tradition and teaches it to his kids... Uh, the same way it was taught to him and his myths and his experiences and lives, you know, within, say, for example, the jungle. His interpretation of what the jungle truly is cannot influence the New World Order's academic understanding of what jungles are and of what this tribesman is. Like, like his name and his people's name and his tribe's origin and his ethnic background and his genetic makeup and his evolutionary history and the different types of primates that he evolved from and the different dinosaurs that lived in the same land. They are not using him as an authority, even though he is currently as alive in the modern day as those same professors are same spark of life is in his blood and the breath of life is in his lungs as those professors are currently the difference is they are very far removed from that environment and live with a very insular monastery type mindset like I said they are telling the world what to believe from behind uh, closed office doors and telling what that Amazon tribesman to believe about the, the same world that they share without any respect or regard to that Amazon tribesman experience, his mythology, his history, his people's history, his people's experiences, or his people's future. Which is why when people are now starting to get access to information, they are developing an empowered sense of rebellious um, defiance. And it's now becoming a divisive battlefield where there's a lot at stake here. There's a lot of personal um, shit going to go down, basically, as people become as educated and as able to access data, the same as professors and academics. And this is going to be kind of the, I guess, the big thing this next decade. And that in cryptozoology, it's no longer going to be fringe, um, you know, misrepresented and misunderstood, um, exploited, you know, well-intentioned people that you would call aboriginals, that you would call Native Americans, um, in a, in a classic sense of the word, you know, trying to validate and validate and get respect for their own personal experiences. 
but they are going to be able to match, uh, they go toe-to-toe, basically, with this academic world, uh, be in their own lingo, in their own in their own terms. Um, if you thought, say, for example, the last ten years in Bigfoot research, Sasquatch research, when it came to the hunt for DNA, when it came to the prioritization of forensic evidence, such as dermal ridge footprint um, inv- investigation, and you know hair samples and things like that you know, evolving away from the simple um, campfire story or our personal account. Um, then it, it grew into a phenomenon. The same way that ghost hunting came from very humble roots, which was people, you know, uh, trying to find poltergeists in, in possessions of houses to, you know, using electronic scanners and, and things that were, you know, they border on spycraft. Like, you have EMF readers, IR, visual, uh, kinetic, you know, movement sensing cameras, night vision, uh, different kinds of highly tuned audio, ultrasound audio, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, that ghost hunting has become a legitimate science, you know, within the last 10, 20 years. Same thing. But it's not accepted within the, the mainstream media. The best it's going to be is a, an extremely competent um, genre of of this kind of uh, journalism, this kind of uh, um, I guess you would call it like a competitive. Um, documentary uh, genre where it's it's people going forward to prove hypothesis going forward to find evidence to kind of defy the mainstream and uh, succeeding I, I'm thinking much in the same way as Josh Gates's destination truth in which as as kind of sensational as that show was, the legitimacy that was brought to the sense of cryptozoology and the sense of exploration did prove to be highly successful and did catapult him into a sense of legitimacy in the archaeological world, in the world of, you know, what we would call, I guess you call it adventuring. And cryptozoology will become something from a fringe science to a state of adventuring. Uh, within this next 10 years. And it will be due to what can only be assumed as an ego death, or what needs to happen as an ego death. Those that can achieve the ego death will survive and be the better for it. But those that don't will have to suffer uh, much the same way that ufologists who are inflexible with understanding the UFO phenomenon they will, uh, and they have not been able to survive the transition from ufology in a purely physical investigation of whether or not this even exists, this phenomenon even exists, to the spiritual dimension that it's taken over, the religious dimension that it's kind of imbued with now, that not only does it exist, but what does it mean, um, 
you know, very rarely 10, 15 years ago would you find a ufologist that was open about New Age mysticism, New Age spirituality, um, you know, alternative or, you know, type of, of transcendental thought processes. They were very hardline uh, about the philo- about the kind of, uh, you know, the facts in the data, like MUFON, for example. And now... MUFON is, is kind of the minority when it comes to this UFO movement, that the majority have taken the spiritual uh, pill, for example, and kind of gone off that deeper end of the spectrum, uh, combining multiple fields of New Age philosophy and thought to kind of help create a more accurate picture of things. This is just simply because there is more information available now about these subjects that it becomes impossible to ignore the connections between um, the different thinkers, the different ideas, the different philosophers. No longer can you only be locked into one state of thinking or thought, Um, which is the same way, the same thing that academia used to create its gestalt monolithic idea of the world was that you really couldn't, like, you know, you weren't expected to only study one thing in academia. You study a variety of subjects and you specialize in one subject, but the variety of subjects that are electives, that are your basic, your core curriculum, they are necessary for you to not only understand this concentration, this this major of study, the major field of study, but also necessary for you to better, uh, more accurately be even able to understand it. Like, it's not expected for you to be able to, for example, master medical sciences without your core curriculum. So you're not you know, thus given the the expectation the the expectation to have done so, but without your requirements, your basic core curriculum, it's ex- it's assumed that you are unable to master these concepts, and thus you're uneligible. You know, it disqualifies you in the academic world from attaining these degrees if you cannot, for example, master these other peripheral fields of study. Same thing with cryptozoology. This is now more of a uh, criticism on um, the cryptozoologists themselves, that if they are not able to master the basics of natural sciences, of field research procedures, of qualitative analytics, of data gathering, of like paleontological theory, for example, of zoological theory, of anatomy, of ecology then they do, don't stand a real chance at ever really finding quote-unquote evidence. Because even the best intentions don't really translate into a, a debate worth having. Because exactly, like you can have the best intentions, you can't win the court case without evidence. And the idea of providing evidence is exactly, that's the metric which it all falls under. So you have to be a scientist. You have to be a scientist about it. You have to be a professor about these things about it. You can't make mistakes. You can't goof up. You can't 
play it fast and loose. If you really cared about Bigfoot, you would do yourself a favor and read about primates. You would know about monkeys. You would know about the mainstream theories on monkeys. You would know about the history of monkeys. You would know about not only the history of North America, you would know the different eras of like paleolithic mesozoic you know you know you wouldn't you would know the entirety of the science around the thing you're learning about not just specifically bigfoot but you know you would know about trees you would know about the weather you would know about um you know how digestion works like the idea of uh, mammalian biology, just basically mammalian biology. You would know horticulture and the exact plants, trees. Uh, you would know about um, geology because that factors in too, like cave systems, uh, things like that. You know, you would have to because how else? I, it's taken for granted and you cannot take things for granted. You cannot have blind spots like that. And this is where the two worlds are going to meet. And it's going to basically be better for both of them because, you know, honest assessment, many cryptozoologists lead with their heart and they lead through assumptions and bias. For example, you have your Native American supremacists who believe that most Native American legends and stories and cryptids are real. And because they had the seniority and the expertise on the land, and of course how their myth structure is made, there's a lot of credence in their own theories, but basically everything that they, the, the various tribes talked about um, is real, right? And that's one thing, but then those same people will not, you know, uh, understand how paleontology factors into it or how biology factors into it or how you know, geology factors into it or how, you know, um, environmental nature is in fact factor into it. Same thing with like lake monsters. You have your people who believe in one certain lake monster, but don't really do the real research around it to kind of pinpoint where it would live or its primary source of food or, uh, you know, it's nature, like, so you have, like, your Ogopogo or your Loch Ness Monster enthusiasts, and they really like the idea, and they have good intentions, and they really want to find it, and they be they believe, you know, they fight the good fight, they, they, they believe they're being lied to, they know they're being lied to, they, they, they have their own experiences, or they, they make up their own minds, but then they go on fool's errands, and for 25 years, they don't really ever figure it out. That it's not a matter of just hoping, you know, I can throw a fishing, I can throw a fishing rod and a worm on a hook out every day and I'm not going to catch a great white shark, even though great white sharks live in the ocean and they are real. Like you have to do the science behind it. You have to know the nature behind it. You have to be an expert on the subject, right? Like, like, and so when you get all those things adding up and firing on all cylinders, when you get all those fires started and they all kind of add up, then you have a really dangerous combination because you have someone who's able to be 
basically a great detective in the natural world, taking account eyewitness experiences from the local populations, taking account the necessities and the realities of the wilderness. But then the third element that's going to happen is the ego death in which all the bias is removed. All the expectation is removed. And not only that, but also all the academic bullshit of deep time and their Darwinian propaganda is removed. And it's neither adhered to by any specific philosophy that exists already, but it's the creation of something new, which is there is no no. There is no quote-unquote no in this world, in this science. You know, it's stranger things exist in, your, in heaven and earth than in your philosophies. You know, like, anything is possible. And science and academia have already found this to be true. But they have created the idea of deep time and of Darwinian evolution to kind of both explain away and then to... Um, kind of like, okay, so they, they have the evidence that everything exists currently in one form or another. They have the historical precedent for it, but they use deep time to kind of create this atheistic worldview, to put it bluntly, this New World Order atheistic worldview, which, even though these incredible, fascinating creatures could exist even though these incredible, fascinating creatures did exist, these incredible, these incredible, fascinating creatures do not currently exist. And we know that from the same evidence provided to us that they do exist in the first place, or they did exist in the first place. The same research and science used to validate and to prove and to understand, say, for example, the T-Rex... Is the same science and understanding used to try to explain that the T-Rex is extinct. And that the T-Rex is currently nowhere on Earth. And that nothing acts like a T-Rex and nothing can ever act like a T-Rex ever again. But it's only because we know so much about T-Rexes that we are certain that there are no more T-Rexes anywhere on Earth. <laughs> so don't go looking for them. And they're definitely not in Australia, in the outback, and they're definitely not surviving on camel populations and emu populations and kangaroo populations and, uh, you know, in basically anything they want, cattle, sheep, um, no shortage of mammals. There's also no T-Rexes in Texas, uh, especially no micro or nano T-Rexes, the smaller variety. That would require less uh, calories and could actually escape and hide in the shrub brush. Um, in a mostly unpopulated uh, South Texas, because it's mostly privately owned and federally owned land. Um, there's not even a highway. There's not a major highway that goes from Corpus Christi to Brownsville, by the way. And it's 2020. Um, Exactly. It's not like it has hundreds of thousands of acres and millions of square miles to, like, fucking Rome in the southwest panhandle of the Big Bend National Park or the Rio Grande Valley. Um, oh, and there's definitely no T-Rexes roaming around the Mojave Desert. 
And there's definitely no T-Rexes roaming around the Rocky Mountain mountain range. And there's definitely no T-Rexes roaming around Alberta, Canada, even though there's a shitload of fossils just literally found hanging out, like, surface level in the dirt. And that someone's private farm was the number one supplier of complete T-Rex skeletons. Because the land he bought was littered in T-Rex skeletons. And the Native Americans have accounts of trading dragon's teeth that they'd find in riverbeds, which were later proven to be T-Rex teeth. Six-inch long, nine-inch long serrated T-Rex teeth. Let alone, (laughs) these creatures have been sighted in the 20th century with remarkable frequency. Uh, As current as 2020, there have been recitings of T-Rexes in America. So, let alone all that, we know for a fact, because we are absolute masters of the T-Rex biology and T-Rex facts, and we know all these things about them, We've researched them and done so much effort in in putting, you know, basically our uh, boots on the ground and all these scientists that we owe so much to. uh, We we know for a fact that it can't possibly still be alive. And um, this great no, this great gatekeeping uh, N-O, quote-unquote no, that academia always pushes in front of us if you just let it dissolve the same way that during ego death, the I and the universe dissolve and everything kind of takes the sense of oneness or universality, right? And you just replace any sense of prohibition with an sense of acceptance of the fact and just listen to the information and, and just imagine that it's currently the reality you live in you see that cryptozoology and mainstream academia are bridged. They are bridged and they are speaking about the same world, the world we currently live in, where all your cryptids and your uh, lake monsters, your Bigfoot, your you know Mothman, all of them have historical and accurate precedent within what we consider the fossil record what we consider in, in the in the great deep time past or in the missing links of linear Darwinian evolution, right? So, an example of this that I kind of want to get across is how scientists talk about um, the evolution or the evolutionary cycle of, of our world, right? And the possibilities they're in. And how that appears to basically be a one-on-one analog with cryptozoology, right? Now, I oftentimes um, like to advertise other YouTube providers, YouTube creators, and, uh, you know, basically thank them for their efforts um, despite them being much more enormous and successful, influential than my channel is. So this week's is going to be Moth Light Media, which is a nature, uh, science, uh, paleo- paleontology, 
biology type YouTube channel, right? Very serious in its subject matter. It's very dry. It's very entertaining. It's colorful. At the same time, it is very straightforward presentation of facts, right? Like it's not anything other the heads of the top. It is a presentation of the facts, right? But if you listen to uh, facts, as the academic world is right now. But if you listen to this presentation that I'm going to play about the uh, Cryodracon, the frozen dragon of the north, you start seeing what I was talking about, that all the information they provide is still accurate to the realities of the world we're currently living in. And it explains the cryptozoological sightings, it explains the myths, the modern legends, it explains the aberrations, the, uh, the mysteries of this world. The problem is they've established this great capital N-O, as in this is not reality now. Or this is true, but not the case now, right? The great capital N-O. And so, I'm going to present this video. Uh, I hope, you know, you extend your patience into, um, you know, allowing it to play and everything. If you are a cryptozoologist, don't try to feel as if though this is uh, me taking their side over any other. But rather, Canada. There once lived allow a giant yourself to flying see. monster that would have soared over the heads of the dinosaurs. Over the icy badlands of Alberta, Canada, there once lived a giant flying monster that would have soared over the heads of the dinosaurs that lived there during the Cretaceous period. And perhaps, like many of its close relatives, spent a lot of time lumbering on the ground in search of food as well. Only recently named, this Canadian pterosaur was a member of the funny giraffe-shaped pterosaurs, the Asdarkids, known for being mostly head and neck. The Asdarkids were once poorly understood and only known from scant remains. But over the past few decades, more and more of these creatures are being discovered, showing they lived in all sorts of different habitats in different places around the world. And this newly discovered pterosaur continues the trend, showing these animals once occupied the far north. Due to where these fossils were discovered, it was named Cryodracon Boreas, or the frozen dragon of the north winds. The skeleton that Cryodracon was named from was an animal that would have stood around the same height as a human and would have had a wingspan of 5 meters. So it was a medium to large sized pterosaur, but would have been larger than any living flying bird. The team of paleontologists who described this new pterosaur named it Cryodracon because it is currently the most far north as Darkid known. It was even suggested that the species name should be Cryodracon Viserion after one of the dragons out of Game of Thrones. Okay, so just kind of the inter, inter, uh, interject here. So they are saying that there is fossil precedent for a large, extremely large, flying creature to live in the wilderness in the Rocky Mountain area of Canada, the Canadian, the northern Canadian wilderness, right? Thunderbird. Think Thunderbird. Think modern-day pterosaur sightings. 
uh, in the Midwest. Think um, Dragon, modern-day Dragon. Think the things which are relegated to myth and legend in the field of cryptozoology on the extreme ends of Lake Monster, Sasquatch, Mothman, etc., etc. You know, that's what I was saying. You think these things are the extreme end, not trying to find a currently considered extinct Tasmanian tiger, not trying to find a Caribbean monk seal, but trying to find a dragon, trying to find a thunderbird, trying to find a lake monster or a sea serpent, right, that has a specific territory. Think about the historical precedent for these creatures. They exist. They exist in the same locality. They exist with roughly the same environment. And these creatures invoke the same cultural impression by those that discover them that these are things are dragonic. Thus, they are named dragons in their lexa. They're, they're naming, uh, so basically they are invoking the same values, cultural values, the same anthro, uh, I guess you call it anthropologic importance, right? That they would, and a Native American who was witnessing this creature living in the time of its, like, you know, simultaneously with itself. So this Native American, I'm saying put yourself in the mindset of it, sees this creature flying, this gigantic avian uh, creature, thinks Thunderbird. Scientists find this fossil, paleontological record, they think Thunderbird, or they think dragon, right? They think mythological, legendary, flying creature. But eventually, Boreas, or North Winds, was settled upon. Although Cryodraken is a great name for a Canadian pterosaur, it is only describing the modern climate of the region it was discovered in, as during the Cretaceous, southern Canada would have been a very different place to now. As 77 million years ago, when Cryodraken was at large, Canada was a lot warmer. Okay, so there you go. There's the myth of deep time, that they are saying that they have accurate abilities to perceive hundreds of you know, of millions of years in the past and to specifically place it within, um, you know, this this calendar, this deep time calendar based on, say, for example, the advances of geological research, the fossil, the this soil, the rock formation that it was found in, et cetera, et cetera. This is where, this is the great no. This is the great... Um, N-O, the capital no, the religious idea of why it cannot currently exist, but why it did previously exist. Instead of saying, this thing existed and probably still does. In the same rocks as the cryodracon fossils, there are also the remains of cold-blooded animals like crocodiles. Although this does not necessarily mean that Cryodraken's habitat was tropical, as turtles and crocodiles during the Cretaceous were a lot more diverse, and could sometimes be found in colder habitats than they usually are found in today. Most estimates suggest that Cretaceous southern Canada probably had a similar climate to modern-day Oregon. 
Alberta at this time in history was teeming with dinosaurs, and the pterosaur fossils show signs of this. The skeleton that Cryodraken was named from has scars and even an embedded tooth in it, most likely left from a dinosaur that was scavenging the creature after it had died. Specifically, it was thought to have belonged to Sauronothelestes, which is a raptor that was common in Canada during this period of time. This skeleton of Cryodraken was discovered in the 90s, and fossils from this pterosaur... Okay, so now we're going to be going from that. See, they had this historical precedent where they said that because of the things surrounding it, the rock it was found in, the teeth of the scavengers they found uh, alongside of it, that it wasn't just a particularly old specimen of this creature, and that the environment that it lived in was not necessarily too much different than the environment that it currently Canada you know, has, right? But that it's not an environmental issue, but that using the snapshot of the world around it, gestalt information around it, they play detectives, and they said that it must exist around a certain time frame. Now, in this next segment, hear how quickly they deduce this and keep in mind the perspective of 30 years. They had found these fossils in the 70s, they misclassified it. The discovery went basically unnoticed until the 90s. And within the 90s to 2020, they sat on it. In 2019, sorry. They sat on it basically without truly knowing what they had. And then research began on it in 2019. And they created this seemingly accurate understanding of mastery of this specific species of Arctic pterosaur within two calendar years, right? Using the gestalt information of the previously established facts, quote-unquote facts, that academia was willing to consider surrounding the discovery of these fossils. That deep time existed, that these were hundreds of millions of years old, that these belong to a certain extent species that, you know, and all these species were extinct and that, et cetera, et cetera, right? That all that was set in stone. That's all certain, that inflexible, right? That is absolutely accurate in their mindset, right? But within 30 years, they were able to make a mistake, correct that mistake, and then finalize the correction of the mistake within two calendar years, right? Two calendar years. That everything they had known before these two calendar years was inaccurate, for lack of a better word. Was a mistake, was was their bad, basically. And then they were able to check themselves before they wrecked themselves any further. Actually been known from Canada since the 70s. But the fact they belong to a new pterosaur not known to science was only very recently found out. This is because at the time when they were discovered, the Asdarkids were not a very well understood group of animals. The first Asdarkid to be named was the famous and giant Quetzalcoatlus that was named in the early 70s. And then not long after this, another smaller pterosaur was discovered in Kazakhstan, named Asdarko. These pterosaurs, as well as a few other scant remains found in other parts of the world, were enough to tell that there was once a whole family of pterosaurs with unusually long necks that lived during the Cretaceous that they named as Darkids. 
However, they were still a very poorly understood group of animals, and so when the first fossils of pterosaurs were found in Canada, it was thought that they belonged to the only large pterosaur known at the time, Quetzalcoatlus. Quetzalcoatlus had a smaller species known as Quetzalcoatlus sp that lived in what is modern-day Texas and was about the same size as the cryodracon skeleton. So it was originally thought the cryodracon was just another population of Quetzalcoatlus sp that lived in the north and that these pterosaurs just had a much larger range than previously realized. The problem is that when an animal is only known from a handful of species, it is difficult to tell if their features are present throughout the family or unique to one specific member of the family. Both Cryodracon and Quetzalcoatlus were late Cretaceous pterosaurs that shared many features and were around the same size as each other, so they were thought to be the same animal because no one knew enough about these giant flying creatures to say any different. However, since the 90s, many more Asdarkids have been discovered from all over the world, with many of these animals being known from much more complete remains, including some very large ones like the monstrous Hatsiagopteryx that was discovered in Romania in the early 2000s, and had some species that may have also reached Quetzalcoatlus proportions. This gave scientists many more fossils to study, giving a much better idea of what this large family of pterosaurs looked like and the unique features that each member of the group had. In 2019, armed with this new data, the skeleton of the pterosaur found in Alberta was re-examined and it was found that the pterosaur was very different from Quetzalcoatlus and a unique animal new to science. Although the skeleton that Cryodracon was named from was quite moderately sized, this may not have been the size limit of this pterosaur. In the same rocks where this skeleton was discovered, there is a single giant neck vertebrae that is also thought to have belonged to Cryodracon, that is around the same size as the neck of Quetzalcoatlus northropi, meaning these animals may have grown to rival the giant species of Quetzalcoatlus. If this neck vertebrae did belong to Cryodracon, it would have been able to look a giraffe in the eye while standing up straight, and would have most likely had a wingspan stretching to 10 meters, which is more than twice as large as the wandering albatross, which has the largest wingspan of any bird living today. And its wing length would have been a lot more comparable to small aircraft than any bird. The bones of most of the fossils are... Now, that little statement right there, that instantly reminds me of the fact that many times when Thunderbirds are seen, they are described as the size of small, single-engine propeller planes, 30 to 40 feet in width. They are seen in Alaska. They are seen in Western Canada. They are seen in the Rocky Mountains. They are seen in the Great Plains. They are seen in the Canadian forests. They are seen in Alberta, Canada with extreme frequency. This is a Pacific Northwest legend. Uh, for example, if in the greater Pacific Northwest area, the uh, Snake River people, for example, tell a lot of the Thunderbird legends as we have in, you know, inherited them, basically. They are, they are telling you without telling you because they also have said Quetzalcoatlus Northropi many times. Quetzalcoatlus was a species that lived in Texas. Texas has a high amount of pterodactyl and quote-unquote big bird sightings. Now, generationally, 
seen by very reputable uh, eyewitnesses, such as nuns, such as uh, local townspeople, you know, government officials, police. These creatures are rare, but they are still existing. And they are saying it with such certainty because they want you to think that academia is able to grow and to change that fast, that simply through the collection of of specimens that they are then able to create more and you know coherent understandings of these things. If you added up every single person who's ever even seen a real specimen of this, it would number less in the thousands. It would number maybe into the thousands if you're lucky. Let alone the dozens of thousands, tens of thousands, the twenties of thousands. How many experts in pterodactyls are there really? Now, how much information do you think would exist on dragons, on thunderbirds, on large pterodactyl sightings in the last century? Like the 14 researchers, the traditional legends and myths. For example, they mentioned in that video that one of the specimens was found in Romania, so Eastern Europe, with its dragon myths. With its uh, Kazakhstan, you know, China, uh, Africa, North Africa, the Arabic, um, you know, ex-caliphate, ancient Egypt, for example, North America, South America, Mexico. Like I said, the, like all these indigenous peoples have feathered serpent mythology. They have dragon mythology. They have gigantic bird mythology, like the rock um, in, in, in the Middle East. Uh, dragons in Europe, uh, Quetzalcoatlus is named for the feathered serpent in Mayan Aztec legend, for example. One of these things was the size of giraffes. Like, they're basically the size of giraffes with 30 to 40 foot wingspans. If the legend of the Aztecs founding Teotihuacan on the lake by seeing a eagle eating a snake on a on you know you know like in in a in a vision and then seeing it in real life they may have seen a quetzalcoatlus eating an anaconda you know that that's just as possible and and interpreted due to the limitations of translation into eagle eating a serpent because Quetzalcoatlus is indigenous to the area. And it, you know, is very pronounced in mythology and lore. It was very well known to the people at the time. And due to climate factors, or just through population noise, and, you know, it's not hiding. It's, it's just being ignored especially because academia is pushing the fact that these are impossible animals. That this level of eyewitness, you know, experience is close to insanity. That if you really saw a pterodactyl, it's like if you had a hallucination or a, an angelic visit or, you know, as something as incredible and as... Um, you know, unreal according to mainstream society. You know, 
to have seen an animal, which they tell you in academia, that has no possibility of existing currently. Ignoring the cryptozoologist, ignoring the uh, aboriginal expert, ignoring the eyewitness, ignoring the, the layman. Right, delegitimizing the layman, delegitimizing the Native American again. Right, taking away his his right to speak, his right to uh, you know stand up for himself, unless he speak the white man's language, unless he speak the colonial language. Right. Um, now the thing is, the cryptozoologist never before has had access to that foreign language, that academic language. With YouTube, with videos like this, with channels like this, uh, Moth Light Media, uh, Benji Thomas, um, you know, your different paleontology uh, services, Trady Explainer, scientific, dry, academic, supporting, legitimate insiders. You know, they as amateurish as they are, as, you know, strictly for entertainment as they are, gives us more tools, more weaponry to use in this fight because it gives us the language that they use. It gives us the mindset that they use. It gives us what they have interpreted as reality. And it lines up with ours. The language is different, but the message is the same. When I said the ego death is going to be essential for the future of cryptozoology, uh, and cryptozoologists, those that can swallow their pride, that can view media like this and see the truth, see the, the forest for the trees, see the similarities, and can enrich themselves with this education, paleontological education, they can prosper into the future. Those that can't, will not be able to compete with videos like this, which will reach far more people and uh, provide a very mainstream status quo, you know, presentation of it, while unaware of the truth that it's actually presenting. It's presenting the fact that mainstream academia, up until two years ago, did not understand or comprehend the reality of North American pterodon megafauna in America against, as it ignored the eyewitnesses, against all evidence, against all precedent of the of the local legends, the local culture, etc., etc., against all of the deafening evidence aimed against it, it was completely ignorant of the reality that pterodons or a widespread megafauna, a element in historical zoology as important as seropod dinosaurs, as important as theropod dinosaurs, and your large marine reptiles. You know, and and that they're size and that their uh, uh, distribution was radically underestimated the last 100 years of scientific uh, research, paleontological research and, and media 
Um, you could not have found this information in 1970 because it simply did not exist. You could not have found this information in 1980 because it simply did not exist. You could not have found this information in 2010 because it simply did not exist. Like my sighting with the whale in the Port Aransas shipping channel. In 2016, it was a sea monster because the whale simply did not exist. According to mainstream uh, information. But it did exist. I saw it with my own eyes. It existed for hundreds of thousands of years before mankind lived on these beaches. It'll exist after mankind has passed away. It exists simultaneously with us. The idea of when it started to exist, when it didn't exist, that's how absurd this all is. You saw reality. I saw reality. That didn't jive with reality. It was a glitch. It wasn't a glitch in the Matrix. You saw the Matrix for what it was. You saw this, this reality. You saw that mankind is limited because... No one can tell you what isn't told to them. If it's not something you can search on Google, if it's not something you can find in a book, then it might as well not exist. That's the world they want you to live in. That's the New World Order. What they don't want you to think about is that you have the right to name these things. You have the right to give these things voice and power and spirit and life and you have the right to research these things you have the right to become an expert in these things you have a, the right to become an authority on these things because you do not want to go or or do not want to play their game does not mean that they don't play that game you know like is that just because you refuse to play the game doesn't mean that they're stuck in that bullshit, that they're stuck in that mindset where, yes, what I saw was just a whale, but until last year, that whale didn't exist. So they were the fools. And now they can turn around and say, I am the fool, because what I think is a sea monster was just a whale that they did not know existed until they recovered a corpse of one in the Florida Everglades in 2020. But it's because I've already accepted the fact that as a cryptozoologist, as a researcher, I must allow my ego to die and to dissolve and to fade away so that I can accept reality for what it is that I can't hold these things personally, and I can't hold it to their standard of being personal either, because they will admit that they know very little. But they will also admit that the truth is out there, and that the things we are seeing are real in ways that we never can. They can provide the fossils. They can provide the physical evidence and the precedent for it. They can provide the anatomy of it. While we can provide the eyewitness experience of it. While we can provide the legend behind it. The importance behind it. The value of it as information of our natural world. And that is going to be my episode on cryptozoology and ego-death. That is a this installment of the North East West South News for March 1st, 2021. I thank you all sincerely for tuning in. Definitely check out my 
Instagram page at Rumors of Instinct. Um, excellent Instagram page. Post memes daily. Uh, it's where I post my promos for my upcoming shows, my interviews, um, and channel activity on YouTube. Uh, check out my YouTube, The Rumors of Instinct Podcast on YouTube. Check out my library in Odyssey. Um, I'll leave the links and everything below in the description box. Definitely reach out to me and contact me for experiences, collaboration attempts, or, or endeavors, efforts, etc. Um, the, the email for the podcast is the rumors of instinct podcast at gmail.com. The new Patreon is the rumors of instinct podcast. Patreon, so patreon.com slash the rumors of instinct podcast. Uh, check out the link tree. I'll post the link tree below. Definitely uh, links to my Twitter, to Facebook, different social media where I post promos for the upcoming shows, upcoming specials, projects, etc. As well as memes, stories, videos, uh, you know, links, uh, different amounts of inspiration throughout the, the whole day and, and night cycle of life and death. So, Basically, um, if you're not subscribed or following me on those various social media networks, I highly, highly advise you get on with that, um, especially Instagram. Uh, I'm actually becoming really, really fond of the Instagram format, the whole connection through pictures and, and updates, etc. So, at Rumors of Instinct uh, for the Instagram. Thank you all very, very much. Uh, sincerely from the bottom of my heart. Check out my portfolio of videos, my archive of different interviews and other episodes that I've made. Um, this is episode number 77, so definitely a large amount of content to binge if you're catching yourself uh, needing to kill a couple of hours and maybe listen to it through the night. You know, definitely highly recommend um, past episodes. Uh, past interviews, uh, especially the one with at crash crypt at crash uh, course cryptozoology uh, that I had with him on cryptozoology. Excellent, excellent episode. Uh, and I hope to interview more cryptozoologists in the future regarding their projects as well. Uh, I am incredibly passionate about the subject, and I feel like there's a lot of importance to it especially since I hold natural science with such high esteem. And I know that seems ironic that someone who is actively trying to battle and empower the everyday, or battle academic, you know, monoliths, the New World Order, you know, in favor of the everyday underdog, um, loves natural science so much, but it's because I love the natural world so much. I love nature so much. And, you know, I want to return mankind to that state of wisdom, that state of oneness that we were assigned to achieve in the days of the garden, you know, by Jehovah himself. It's the one accurate decree. The one original decree was to go forth and name the animals. And that is what I think cryptozoology is doing. It's going forth and naming the animals. So thank you all very much. Namaste and Shalom. Iron sharpens iron. A friend sharpens a friend. Thank you all very much out there in dreamland. God bless you and your families.